Well, I must say, I'm incredibly honored to be up here today. My name is Jake Norman. Uh, if you don't know me, I've been attending TBC for about two years now, and I truly love it here. And I've been blessed and served by so many of you, and I strive every day to do the same. Um, I've always been wondering something is that, can I, wear a, can I get up here and preach in this pulpit without a blazer? And the answer is no. I've been reprimanded by Clay um, already and rebuked gently, I might add. But as Mark Hager has nicknamed me the bad boy of biblical counseling, I figured if anyone's going to take one for the team, it should be me. So I gave it a shot. So I never in a million years thought that I'd be preaching a sermon uh, in my lifetime. Um, If you would have asked me my thoughts on preaching a sermon about up until about I'd say five to six months ago, I would have said, like, absolutely, no way, Jose. Um, however, since my conversion about two and a half years ago, um, the Lord has been incredibly gracious and radical in saving me from a sinful past, and he has been incredibly gracious since in his sanctification, completely reorienting all of my desires to serve him in ways that I never thought I would want to. So, let's dive in. The fruit of the Spirit that I've been assigned is the fruit of the Spirit of gentleness and I did for a second think Clay assigned me gentleness as a backhanded compliment, but after just one more quick second of thought, I realized that had I been assigned any single one of the other fruits, I would have been wondering the same thing. I say that because it is incredibly humbling to be teaching on this topic. I would be willing to place a wager that if you had asked any person that had ever come into contact with me before, my, before I was converted, and if you asked them if I was gentle, I would be willing to bet that zero would say that I was gentle. When I was saved, the Lord immediately showed me my shortcomings in this area, and I'm humbled daily at the kindness of the Lord to reveal my lack of gentleness to me and the significant growth that he has caused in me since then. So in all humility, let's begin to dive into what gentleness is all about. Gentleness is a term that has been widely abused and misdefined by our culture. True gentleness uh, seems to have been lost somewhere along the way in our postmodern, speak your truth, if it's true to you, it's true culture. Um, In our culture, where it is considered almost a cardinal sin to attempt to change someone's sinful way of life or infringe upon their thinking, just their thinking, true gentleness seems to have been misdefined, lost, or even extinct. So to help illustrate this problem, uh, I decided to ask my coworkers, some of my coworkers, what their own definitions of gentleness was while I was at work this week. Um, this was quite entertaining. Uh, so here's a few. Um, here's one. Being humble, quiet, I don't know, why do you care? Open-minded. Having the strength not to share your own opinion and value the relationship you have with the person more. And my personal favorite, being soft, a sign of weakness. So as you can see uh, from my from my hypothesis that gentleness has been misdefined, it was backed up in how, how it was answered uh, throughout the week. To give my coworkers credit, some of them did have a very good definition, but the majority were very below par. So, living in a world that constantly tells us to love yourself first, or put your desires first, or focus on yourself first, and don't let others get in the way of your dreams and desires, it makes cultivating a gentle spirit very difficult. Because gentleness is the polar opposite of being overly concerned with yourself. When we share correction to each other, we are often brash, condescending, and even rude. 
And when we receive correction, we often listen to the other person as if they're a threat. We think, he doesn't know me. She just doesn't get it. Or, man, why is he coming at me like this right now? But gentleness does not deal or respond with harshness. It isn't rude or irritated. These ways of thinking have also largely corrupted evangelicalism and how we interact within the body and how we evangelize. Shying away from rebuking your brother and sister who is in unrepentant sin in order to maintain the comfort in the relationship you have with them. And in the area of evangelism. I cannot, like, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard a fellow believer say something along the lines of, you don't need to share the gospel to evangelize. All you need is to shine your light and they will see Christ in you. Which is true to a certain point. I want to be very clear here. I'm not underselling the evangelistic impact that an example of kindness and forgiveness to someone outside of Christ can have. But if you walk side by side with someone for a certain amount of time, your faith will come up it will be questioned, and you will have to give a defense for the truth of your faith at some point. Gentleness is not the absence of courage, zeal, or truth. So, this morning, we're going to ask and answer four questions about gentleness that will help us follow the Spirit in in developing and cultivating this fruit. So, after some examples of what gentleness is not, we're all asking ourselves, okay, Jake, like, what is gentleness? So, here's our working definition. Uh, Gentleness is interacting with the humility of Christ in submission to God. That's all it is, I promise. Chet. (laughs) Again, gentleness is interacting with the others in the humility of Christ in submission to God. Alrighty. So, the first question being, what is gentleness? So, We have a working definition now, but what does the fruit of spirit look like when expanded upon even further? Okay, gotcha. Sorry. I guess that wasn't it. Sorry, I was was trying to be efficient here, and I didn't even even back it up. (laughs) No, it's good. Um, First, first we must look to Christ as our ultimate example of gentleness. Christ... In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, the Apostle Paul addresses the Corinthians with the quote, the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So we see that Christ is characterized as first in 1 Corinthians here. All right, and then, so the first text I kind of want to get into here in describing how Christ is gentle is Matthew, 11, uh, Matthew chapter 11. Um, immediately following when Jesus claims that All things have been handed over to him by his Father in heaven. He then immediately goes on in verse 28 to say, Come to me, all who are are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, this is quite the statement, because Jesus says that he has all things for himself. All things were created by him, through him, and for him, Colossians 1.16. And we also know that all wisdom and knowledge is in Christ as well, Colossians 2.3. So, Christ has created all things in existence in both the heavens and the earth, and knows all things, which, by the way, includes a perfect understanding of how immensely sinful we are as a human race, along with a perfect understanding of how holy God is as well. So, the significance of this is that 
even though Christ knew how sinful and undeserving of his love and mercy we are, he still says in humility to us, Come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls, because he is gentle. He is humble in how he speaks to them. He is gentle with his words. And he is able to offer us this rest because of his submission to the will of the Father, in which he was brutally beaten and killed on the cross. For you to accomplish your salvation. Let that sink in. My friends, if we don't begin looking at gentleness with the presupposition that Jesus is the standard, we will have a very difficult, difficult time cultivating it. Secondly, uh, gentleness is a humble disposition. We have to understand ourselves when we speak and listen. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 6 verses 9, Paul tells the Corinthians that the unrighteous will not be in the kingdom of God. Look with me in verse 9 and what he has to say to the Corinthians. Do you, know, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. When we lose sight of ourselves prior to salvation and what we once were, we lose sight of God's gentleness towards us in saving and sanctifying us. True gentleness is humility in delivery. Um, Another text, if you want to turn with me to Titus chapter 3, we're going to be bouncing around a little bit. So it might be a a version day. Paper Bible might be a little outdated. But now turn with me in your Bible to chapter 3 of Titus. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. Malign no one to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasure, spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So here we see Paul encouraging us to be gentle and sharing correction. And not only to be gentle for gentle's sake, but to be gentle because we were once just as hopelessly lost as them. And since our conversion, if not for the Spirit's commitment to conforming us to the image of Christ, we wouldn't be where we are today in spiritual maturity as well. We recognize the humility Christ showed us, and in turn, we show that humility to others when we share the truth. Thirdly, when we are being gentle with our delivery of correction, and when we are listening to others' correction, we must include and look for truth. That is because gentleness is strength under control. This is not to say that we limit or hold back any words of truth when we are communicating with others, but instead we must eliminate arrogance, pridefulness, and bashfulness from our speech when we communicate the truth. When we look at 1 Peter 3, we see an excellent example of this. Oftentimes, when we get into an evangelistic discussion with an unbeliever, we can get overwhelmed quickly. The other person starts asking questions that you have even read, studied, and discussed with other church members before. Some of us have watched football every weekend of our lives since we can remember. But if we were put into a real game 
and there's a real 250-pound linebacker trying to hit you like a Mack truck, things get real very quickly. It's in these moments we cower from sharing the truth of our creating, powerful, and perfect Savior. Or we share the truth without gentleness. So look with me in 1 Peter verse 16, or chapter 3, verse 16, sorry. Peter, Peter calls Christians to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So, this text shows us that gentleness does not mince words of truth. Instead, it boldly defends the truth with zeal, vigor, and courage in a calm and put-together fashion. We as Christians, we have the capital T truth on our side. When we're in a debate, an argument, um, in conflict over our faith, and we're defending it, um, Bobby and I often joke around that in a debate, that being a Christian kind of feels like cheating. This is because Christians have the foundation and the presuppositions to defend anything and any argument against the Bible, Christ, or anything else about our faith. We truly do have the Mack truck level of forceful truth behind us as believers, and we are called to share it with the world, but also to share it gently in hopes that God leads others to repentance, as we see in 2 Timothy 2.25, where it says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. To put it this way, we have a Mack truck level of truth behind us, but we deliver in a Porsche. Moving on to our second question that must be answered this morning, what does gentleness look like in action? So, look at, we're going to look at two pieces of scripture where gentleness is put on display. So turn with me to John chapter 4, and let's dive in. That's John chapter 4. This is Jesus' conversion with the woman at the well of Samaria, or conversation, sorry, conversion. Um, so, in verses 7 through 10 of John chapter 4, Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman, and he asks her for a drink of water, to which she responds, why are you asking me for a drink? You are a Jew. This is because Jews did not associate with Samaritans, as we probably know. But, in verse 10, Jesus replies, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you could have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman does not understand what Jesus is trying to say. This often will happen in our own lives when we are put in similar situations. She replies by asking Jesus in verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Then Jesus says that if anyone drinks of the well that they were currently standing at, that they would indeed thirst again. And then says, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. When he asks this or proclaims this, she still does not understand. So Jesus asks her to tell her husband to come down to the well. When she tells Jesus she does not have a husband, Jesus is like, I know. You have had five husbands. After this, she believes Jesus is a prophet and begins to talk to him about the coming Messiah, to which Jesus reveals to her that he is that coming Messiah. And she runs away and is proclaiming that she thinks he is the Christ. This passage is really breathtaking. Um, I think we kind of get lost in it sometimes because it's such a common Christian uh, story. I know it was in The Chosen. I know it was in 
Uh, it's in many Sunday school classes. But it really is breathtaking because Jesus gently guides a Samaritan woman to a knowledge of his life-giving truth. He did not have to do this. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Um, and on another level, Jesus, who created the universe and everything in it, still took the time to enter creation and humbly take the time to have conversations with us. And let that, like, just let that like, sink in for a second. That is mind-boggling and incredibly humbling when thinking how easily I lose patience. And I'm just simply a mere man. I don't have any right to lose patience. Jesus had every right to lose patience, and he didn't. Another passage of scripture that I want to look at is Acts 26. This is, um, this is when Paul is put on trial by Festus before Agrippa, and his life is on the line, and the Jews are upset with him because he's sharing Christ. He's preaching the gospel after his conversion. And so when he's put in front of Agrippa, his best-suited legal defense is by divine providence, just simply the gospel, basically. It's just the story of Christ and what he did and how it was true and reasonable. So let's pick it up in verse 24. While Paul is giving his defense, Festus interrupts Paul, yelling at him, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you mad. Let's pause for a second and remind ourselves that Christians, we believe, we believe a radical message, right? A radically true message, though, one that will be met with harsh opposition. Personally, I've been called many titles when, when sharing the gospel. I've been called a Bible thumper. I've been called a Jehovah's Witness. I've been called a false prophet. I've been called a member of QAnon, a child molester, and a white supremacist. I've walked in on numerous conversations where peers are gossiping about me for sharing the gospel. My freedoms of sharing the gospel have become more and more restricted at work the more I speak of Christ. And I've been screamed at by a lesbian in a very, very, very quiet coffee shop. Now, all of these are very harsh offenses, yet none give me the permission to have responded in an ungentle manner. In verse, five, or verse 25, Paul then shows us how to respond in these situations when he responds to Festus by saying, For I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence. For I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Paul responds with sober truth in a gentle manner. His answer is true, and Agrippa knows it. He doesn't have any answer, so he just changes the subject by asking Paul a question. And he says, Agrippa says to Paul, in such a short amount of time, you think you will persuade me to become a Christian, Paul? And Paul said, I wish to God that whether in a short time or long, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for my chains. So, in this situation, Paul does not fear man. And even when his life is on the line, he prays to God for the salvation of his accusers. Here, Paul is gentle because he's not overly impressed with his self-worth. He delivers the truth with humility and patience and is submissive to the will of God, hoping his accusers and more come to repentance. Another personal example of gentleness that I've experienced uh, in my own life is my former roommate, Grayson. Uh, about two years, two and a half years ago now, I needed a place to live, and I was uh, very poor at the time. And I had lived with 
a guy named Grayson. Uh, for three months, I subleased the previous summer, and I never talked to him once. There was five other guys in the house, and I would just be like, hi, bye, hi, like, good night, good morning, all right, have a nice day kind of thing. Um, but about a year later, um, I had the providential last-minute decision of moving in with, um, with him. He's 33 years old. I've, we're not in the demographic at all. It's, like, so weird how we found each other. But in my first week living there, I was brought to saving faith in Christ. Grayson did not convert me, but when I started to ask questions about the Bible post-conversion because of my new desires and curiosities, I quickly started to realize that Grayson was one of the smartest people I've ever met. And each day, I would go to work. I worked at a, a desk job, and it was the middle of the pandemic, so I would just sit there scanning paperwork all day long. I had upwards of like, it was, you would scan paper and then put it into the, the machine, and it would just scan for like 20 minutes. So I'd have 20 minutes of free time, like every 20 minutes. So me <laughs> being recently converted, I used this time to listen to every sermon, every podcast. I read, every, I couldn't devour the Bible quick enough. And so when I would be doing this, I would come up with these questions, these doubts, and I would come home and be like, Grayson, like, did God kill Jesus? Grayson, is, is, Je- is, Jesus, not as, is Jesus not God because he says the Father is greater than he? Or, or like... Every day I would come home with these types of questions, and I would be freaking out. My faith was in question. I would be scared to death. Um, But each night I would come home. I'm a 21-year-old kid at the time. And this 33-year-old dude that has a seminary degree, works at Liberty Spiritual Development. He's a real estate agent. He's working 60, 70 hours a week. He would just graciously and gently explain to me the answers that were elementary for him, but, like, groundbreaking for me. I never once felt nervous in approaching him because I knew he would be gentle in his reply. And because of this, I grew in spiritual maturity, like, immensely. So, let's move on. What are some common threats to gentleness? Number one, I would have to say that pride is the number one threat to gentleness. When we lose sight of our orientation to God we will find it very, very difficult to be gentle. As we read earlier in 1 Corinthians and Titus, we were once evildoers as well, before our salvation, which was only that of God's doing. And we forget that it is God who sanctifies us by his Holy Spirit. And we also limit our abilities to be gentle when we do that. You see, if we begin to think that we are responsible for the things that he has brought about in us, and it, or it was our doing in our sanctification and our ability to speak gently with the humility of Christ, our ability to speak gently with the humility of Christ will diminish. A spirit desiring preeminence will lash out, speak rudely, or domineer in conversations with each other. A spirit that desires God's glory over his or hers will speak gently. So, Here's a practical um, day-to-day example of how gentleness can be threatened. As Boundless and Timberlake attendees or members, we are in a position where we are blessed weekly to come in and hear Clay preach, to hear Pastor Farrell teach, um, to be in like, wonderful relationships that are rooted in God's, God's word and God's truth. But when we go outside the church body, I, I know I am, but I'm sure you are, all are as well based off our conversations with each other. 
Um, we're in positions where we bring truth to fellow believers or LU students who are less discerning on topics like the importance of church membership, the pursuit of holiness, or practical theology. We can be easily tempted to let it get out of our heads or get in our heads and share these truths in a condescending, non-gentle, or prideful way. Number two, people who are difficult to love. Outside threats um, that the devil uses are very common as well. We know if you just simply look around, the devil is roaring like a lion. And there are people in our lives, maybe coworkers, friends, family, even church body members, that we find it difficult to be around. These, these relationships often tempt us to be negative, sarcastic, and short in our conversations. I find all these to manifest in my, in my own life in different situations. The most difficult area would be that I'm trying... The most difficult area of this would be when I'm trying to evangelize a Christian to Timberlake. And by that I mean trying to get someone who professes Christ to come to Timberlake. I'm often patient and gentle at the beginning with this type of ministry. But as conversations go on and weeks go by and months go by, the frustration of continual effort being rejected, I find myself being annoyed, discouraged, and out of gas. I think to myself about this per- about these type of people is... Okay, so you love God, but you don't have a day of the week for him? Or he died for you, but you don't want to be a part of the body of believers he died to create? After letting these thoughts brew in my mind over the days and weeks, I become shorter and rude in my discussions with these people, rather than resting in the humility and dwelling in God's sovereign plan. Another example is when people sin against us inside the body of the church. Now, Timberlake is an amazing place. I'm so thankful for it, filled with gentle people. But there are times where our own brothers and sisters sin against us. In these situations, we often jump to, we, we jump to extremes, right? We're given to extremes. But when it's another believer or a church body member and we're sinned against, we often jump even higher than we would for an unbeliever. We immediately begin to assume that because of just this one sinful deed committed against us, that there must be much more behind it. We let bitterness harbor in our hearts on the drive home. We wake up the next day having spiteful conversations in our head with them. And then the next Thursday, Sunday, or Mr. Goody's hangout, we gossip about them. And then, by the time we see them again and it's time to have a conversation, we've built up an entirely false image in our heads about them, which leads to us not being gentle to them. In these types of situations, we must discipline ourselves to put on love, keep no record of wrongdoing, and give this person the benefit of the doubt, or else gentleness cannot be cultivated. All right, third question is, how do we cultivate gentleness? So we have to build a strategy. And step one of this strategy is we have to isolate the circumstances. We have to figure out exactly what, when, and where you are most often being tempted to be angry, defensive, or short. For example, isolate the circumstances around when the difficult-to-love co-worker has no, who has no room to talk is, riding, is ridiculing you and riding on you for your work ethic. This can be incredibly, because we're in a high-stress environment. We're working, um, we're trying our best, and then some co-worker comes up to you and starts ridiculing you for your lack of effort. The last thing I want to do is say, oh, I'm so sorry. How can I be better? Step two, we have to evaluate our heart. So in these situations, when we're being 
uh, tempted and when we're being challenged to be gentle, we have to evaluate our heart. Dwell on how your heart is responding to the criticism. What lies are you believing that the devil is feeding you? What is your heart telling you that would be sinful? Or what is your heart telling you to say that would be sinful? For example, you might have a strong desire to defend yourself in a happy, in a snappy, not a happy manner, a snappy manner. You might belittle them by saying, well, at least I don't do fill in the blank. In these moments, we're tempted to snap back and we want to, we want to uh, self-exalt ourselves and put ourselves above others, but that's not gentle. So, what do we do with our heart? Oops, sorry. <laughs> you have to evaluate your heart. Um, and then you must confront your heart with truth. What does God's word say about how I should respond? Or what, should Christ, what would Christ say to this person if he was in my shoes? What's that? Jesus says in Matthew 5, 5, if I'm blessed, I'm insulted? No way, no shot. So once, we're, once we've isolated the circumstances and we've, we've recognized what our heart's doing in these situations, we have to confront it, right? We have to self-confront with the truth of Scripture. And we have to apply that in our lives and we develop a plan for obedience. Ask yourself, what would my life look like if I actually implemented the Scripture on the area of gentleness? Practically speaking, what if I responded to my coworker in humility saying, oh, I'm sorry, how do you think I can do better? And again, I'm so sorry I made you feel this way. Little disciplines like this can make all the difference in the world in cultivating the fruits of gentleness. One more way to cultivate gentleness that I personally have seen significant impact from is truly trusting in just the sovereignty of God. In these situations, when we're tempted, when we're confronted, when we're insulted or slandered or gossiped about, and you recognize it and your heart is inflamed and you're, you're fuming and you're boiling with anger, ask yourself, Lord, just pray this, to, pray this to God. Lord, you preordained this to happen to me. What are you trying to kindly show me about my heart? When I do not put this into practice, I often am ungentle. But when I successfully do this, I seem to always respond with gentleness, or it makes it much easier. One last little bonus tool for cultivating gentleness is just simply being around gentle people. I sit and eat lunch with Clay and Tim basically four days a week, and I ask them questions that I don't know the answer to, and that they're kind of like, okay, this is an easy question. I can kind of see it. But they're just like, every single day they look at me and they, Tim just graciously explains something. Or Clay just practically puts something in, into words for me to understand and I leave equipped. I'm just blown away at how many times I've come to Clay and like messed up and been like, dude, what do I do? I screwed up. I've messed up really bad. And Clay's just like, hey man, you're good. You, you don't take an L when you're a Christian, right? We can't lose, right? When, we, when, we get, when we're sinned against, we learn, we learn how to forgive. And when we are sinning against other people, we learn a lesson. We can't lose as Christians. So putting yourself in uh, good circles of good company, um, a companion of fools suffers harm, um, and staying away from, those, from fools who are ungentle will help us cultivate gentleness. So I hope I did an adequate job in equipping you to cultivate gentleness. This is very fun and enjoyable to process, to process this and put this together for you. I am truly honored to be able to stand up here and teach the word to you. 
Um, and I hope you guys take this and put it into this week and the next week and the next week. Um, I will close with this. If you're sitting here sulking or convicted as all get out about gentleness, remember that the same man who wrote, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, was a man who, would, who was given the chance to give a gentle defense for his hope, but denied Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. But our God is a forgiving God. And Jesus gently restored Peter, who went on to start the early church and lead it in gentleness. So, let us rejoice in the gentleness of Christ and cultivate it in our hearts, in our own lives. You're dismissed.